What is up, everybody? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we have the legendary Nolan Bushnell. Nolan is the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, two iconic companies that have truly changed the world. He's known as the father of electronic gaming and the video game industry as we know it, and his story is just incredible. We talked about everything from Nolan's early days and upbringing, how he built Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, the story of hiring Steve Jobs, and why he decided not to invest in Apple early early on, the projects he's working on right now, and his thoughts on Silicon Valley, the future of video gaming, and what he's generally most excited to see in the next five to 10 years. We started off our conversation by hearing about Nolan's childhood. One of the things that when I think about my childhood our home was sort of the nexus of the neighborhood. That is, the kids always came over to my place because we always had stuff going on. And, you know, and it's, it seems like my life was always full of projects. And projects were, have kind of been a center point of my life always on. And the, uh, from, you know, Building zip lines from the tree down to the <laughs> down to the fence post uh, to uh, tree houses to digging holes and turning them into forts and you know and then later on I got into chemistry and of course chemistry meant that you wanted to make things blow up and so I so I had a block house. I made a blockhouse so that I wouldn't hurt myself when I was, you know, detonating my my explosives. I would have been on a terrorist watch list if it, if it had been <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> well, if you looked like me and Pat, yes, that would have probably <laughs> exacerbated it even further. But but I actually blew things up. I mean, um, I created pipe bombs and and you know all the way from black powder to match heads and uh why 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 did you do that it was really about i was very interested in chemistry and that turned into rocketry um i built a liquid fuel rocket when i was probably 10 or 11 and almost burned my garage down um you know it's just it was just projects i i wanted it and stuff did that come naturally to you or, or was there someone in your family that, you know, kind of put that or, you know, you sort of saw what they were doing and, and became inspired to do things yourself? No, I was an absolute outlier. My parents were suffered in silence. They, they would allow me. I mean, how many parents would allow their son to put a red and white stripe pole with a black flashing light on the top of it for an antenna pole? You know, it's not. <laughs> not normal to let kids run around on your roof uh, and mom would just say well make sure you don't fall off that was kind of her admonishment hmm. i remember hearing a story you talk about sort of you know i don't know maybe having like you, you talk about sort of you know you know entrepreneurial bugs that you had as a kid you know selling strawberries and whatnot how did that come about um you know where did was there anyone in your family that had their own business or you had seen that, you know, entrepreneurship and starting a business is 
a you know reasonable thing to do or or again was it something that just came naturally to you well my dad was had his own business he was a cement contractor and uh and i would work with him summers uh that was a little bit later on i think i started working with him when i was nine i think the strawberry thing happened when i was six or seven but it was just the idea that i kind of like to make money and uh and the thought that you could do things to make money not necessarily selling your time but by selling a product i don't know it just seemed i don't know where it came from it just did <laughs> did you did you was the feeling of making money something that came out of like necessity like you you needed to make the money or was it you did you just get a thrill out of making money selling things a little bit of both um definitely maybe not when i was six or seven but uh later on when i got really involved in ham radio the radios were expensive and so i really had to up my game a great deal and that's what pushed me into tv repair and uh and that was a business that i made a lot of money out at a very young age nolan it sounds like you know early on you were this really curious kid who wanted to do things to just discover what you can do right and perhaps you know at that moment you didn't realize that you were setting the stage for you know a life of building things but you know were other kids around you doing stuff like this or 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 were you just like that one you know weird dude who's just doing his own thing building stuff or were you also just you know hanging out with friends and doing things that kids normally do a little bit of both um i was i always thought of myself as the ring leader and so i would often you know get my friends to help me you know like putting up an antenna pole was a two or three person job and i could always you know subvert these guys <laughs> to help me out and they always kind of like to play with the gadgets you know when this will sound funny but i had probably the first speakerphone in utah <laughs> and and i basically hacked the telephone and put it through an amplifier and so kids had come over to call up girlfriends and not realize that everybody was listening and they thought that was great fun <laughs> So I know kind of fast forwarding, I know um, you ended up going to the University of um, Utah and studying electrical engineering, which I guess wouldn't come much of a surprise if you you know you knew Nolan uh, in his younger days. And so, you know, I guess when it came time to college, what did you envision sort of the rest of your career would look like? Like, what were you, you know, what were you interested in? I was very, I was always interested in electronics, but I actually had a branch point um and that was while i was in college i was putting myself through through school by you know my dad died when i was 15 and so from that point on i felt that i had to be financially independent because any money that i took from mom would be you know she had some insurance money but you know i had two younger sisters and an older sister and i felt that anything that i took would be coming out of there you know college fund what have you 
And so it was just always normal to me that I was going to have to totally pay for my own college. And so I got it. I always had jobs and, uh, and working at the amusement park, it turned out that, and, and, and I took the job at the amusement park for all the wrong reasons. That is, I had this advertising company during the day, but I decided I was going to have the amusement park job at night, not to, to earn money because they paid crap wages. You want to meet girls. What's that? You want to meet girls. I wanted to meet girls, but I also wanted to keep myself out of harm's way because I knew, you know, summers in Utah, you'd be taking girls out to dinner. You would be spending money instead of saving. So I thought <laughs> by working, I could make a little bit, but it'd keep me out of harm's way because, you know, I, I knew myself well enough that, that, you know, I could never resist temptation fundamentally. That was kind of my watchword. But then, what were some of those temptations, though, at the time? Like, what? I mean, like, could you share? Like, what did you think? Had you not like been in a more controlled environment? Like, what are what are some examples of things that you may have done? Well, I always wanted to have have kind of a a nice car, what have you, and and things like that. Um, in in Utah, you could get a you could get a driver's license at fourteen. Um, it was a daytime license and it was a no friend license. That is, you could, you could drive them during the daytime, but you couldn't have any of your friends with you. Of course, I violated that all over the place, but, uh, but I bought a car, I bought a model a Ford overhaul. You know, I bought it for five bucks, overhauled the engine, got it going. And, uh, and that was my car in, in high school. And, um, and I got actually pretty good at working on things. I bought a set of acetylene torches and customized it and all that sort of stuff. It was a project. But, yeah. the, um, but the amusement park experience was something that was what I call serendipity and kind of inadvertent because I, it turned out that you, in the games department, you also got a commission. And so while the, the hourly rate was crap, I could make a lot of money on commission. So I was making the equivalent of 3 or $4 an hour, which was like, you know, inflation adjusted is like $25, $30 an hour today. And, and I was sufficiently good that, they turn, that uh, the manager left and they made me manager of the, the whole games department. So at the ripe age of 20, I was managing about a 3 million annual department. And, uh, and that was, and I broke all the records. I had the highest per cap game department in the nation. And so when I graduated from college, I had at the same time some offers from all over the country to come and work the games department with them and at, at significantly higher salaries than what I was currently. In fact, it was a higher salary than I was going to get as a, an associate engineer. 
And when you say games department, um, are we talking about sort of like the you know traditional like carnival style? Yeah, um, throw balls, knock down milk bottles, make baskets, you know, shoot darts, pop balloons. Stuff I'm good at. The stuff I'm actually good at, it's, not these video games. It sounds exactly. like, I mean, besides being good at the business side of things, did you also just enjoy working in that environment? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, and you know, in some ways, I was learning marketing because what I was doing is I was selling you know, a game for 25 cents a play and later on. That was clear. And, and I had two arcades that, that I was managing. So that taught me the economics of the coin operated game business, which not a lot of people have, you know, I knew how much coin operated games cost. I knew how much they had to make per week in order to be a good return. And so that combined with, the other serendipity thing, which was Dr. Evans at the University of Utah, who was in the, his big research was connecting video screens to big computers. You know, and, and so if you were to see a video screen connected to a computer in 1965, there were three places in the world. Stanford, MIT, and the University of Utah. Which one doesn't belong? (laughs) It was really lucky. He went on to found Evans and Sutherland Computer, which is the best graphics computer company in the world at the time. And, you know, they were really a harbinger of of, of new tech. And had you not had that exposure while you were there, would you have even known at the time that that's possible to, to create games with a computer and connect it to a screen and have someone play it on the other side? Well, it was very, when I was playing the games on the big computers, we'd sneak in at night and get, get computer time. And, uh, it was very easy for me to think that, Hey, if I had this video screen connected to a coin slot at my, of my arcade, it'd make money. But then you divide 25 cents a play for three minutes into a million dollar computer and the math didn't work. Hmm. But at the same time, I thought to myself, Hey, you know, sometime this will be possible. Cost of computers will come down and it'll be good. Then the next kind of serendipity thing happens is the job that I got in California when I graduated, I, I basically papered the, you know, with my resume at, at, uh, in, in Silicon Valley. And my reason for going to Silicon Valley is I was a bit of a philosophy nerd and thought that um, semiconductors were the future and that if you wanted to be a prince, you wanted to be on the right-hand side of the king. (laughs) And so proximity, I always felt, was an important thing. And so that said Silicon Valley. But then I got a job at Ampex, which was in the video business. And so I really, you know, sharpened my electrical engineering skills with a really crash course in video technology, which I was also... I was kind of good at it because of my TV repair stuff, but 
you know, it was, it was a little different. It was much higher class. So Nolan, obviously you're doing all this stuff, right? You have multiple different jobs after jobs and you have this electrical engineering degree. Um, and as someone who, you know, as a kid was a builder at heart, somebody who wanted to clearly be an entrepreneur, right? You know, you talk about wanting to make money or realizing that money can be made from the things that you make. Um, you know, were you satisfied with working for other people or you just couldn't wait to get out and do your own thing? I enjoyed working at Ampex, but I can remember when I was driving, I was married at the time and I got married in college. And when I was driving from Utah to California, coming down the hill, I said, in two years, I'm going to start my own company. And, um, and it was almost like clockwork, two years of Ampex, and I started my, I started my own company. So, Nolan, explain to us, you know, what happens after this, right? I mean, you obviously have experience with a few things, and you've been in that space, and you've gained experience. What came of this idea, and, and what was that, and where did that go? First of all, I, I, I had no money. <laughs> I mean, I, I was making a reasonable salary. And, uh, but I felt that I could be a engineering, you know, basically a contract engineering company that would develop games for others. And so the first thing I did was license what turned out to be computer space to a company called Nutty Associates. And they had made a slide projector game that was a trivia game and they'd done pretty well with it. And, uh, but the, the life cycle of a coin-operated game is about a year to 18 months. And so it was at the end of their cycle, and they desperately needed something new. And I showed them my prototype, and uh, and they said, yeah, let's license it. So we negotiated a licensing arrangement, and then they said, but we, we need a, a chief engineer. And uh, I said, I don't know. I'm pretty expensive. <laughs> and they said, well, how much do you need? And so I basically doubled what doubled the salary that, uh, that I was, uh, getting at Ampex. And, uh, and they said yes too fast for which I said, and a company car. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I got it. And so coming home that night, I told my wife, I doubled my salary and she didn't believe me. <laughs> Was she surprised because she couldn't believe that you were able to double your salary? Or, I mean, wh why was she so surprised? She just didn't think that you could just go double your salary, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a day. And, yeah. um, and it, it was the thing where I think her dad was a bureaucrat. He worked for the Bureau of Land Management. So, she was not used to this wild ride of an entrepreneur. Mm. I mean, were you used to it? I mean, is that something that you were prepared for in that moment in time? I'm, I'm a great believer in fake it till you make it. <laughs> and that, that you, you got to believe in dragons before you can slay them. <laughs> and, uh, 
my wife often accuses me of building castles in the sky and then moving into them. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny that you have that point of view because I always hear mixed reviews about that, right? About fake it till you make it. Some argue that they're 100% believers of it. Others say, don't ever do that, right? Lead, lead with knowledge, like go in knowing what you're doing, right? What do you think makes people that fake it till they make it special? And why did it work for you? I hate to admit this, but I am and always was intellectually arrogant. You know, it was, it was just kind of part of my DNA. And I felt that I could get any kind of a position based on skills that I didn't have. And that I could get those skills before they figured out that I didn't have them. And so it, it really came from optimism and, and intellectual arrogance. And, and you're obviously working on something that at the time didn't have a lot of sort of, you know, past history or precedent that you can sort of allude to. It was like, you, I mean, how were you going about talking about yourself and like, you know, having people believe that obviously you have all these skills where, you know, deep down I'm capable of learning them. I maybe, maybe I may not have them to the degree that I'm expressing, but I'll learn them quick enough. Like, how do you talk about stuff that I guess didn't have a lot of, you know, examples that I guess they could point to? Well, I, I was at that point in time, I was well-versed in, what the coin operated game business was. And so I could talk about how this was going to be bigger than Chicago coin speedway as an example, which was kind of the hot game at the time. And so, you know, I, I actually kind of did have a deep understanding of the marketplace that I was going into. Got it. And was this the point where you decided to start Atari or did that come well, we after. started. We started um, the company as Syzygy, and that was the the entity that Ted and I uh, licensed to Nutty. And I went to work for Nutty, and then Ted came three months later. Hmm. And uh, he, we were office mates at Ampex, and uh, and we were basically slammed because we had to show the, a product. For, for the AMO, AMOA show in Chicago that was going to be in October of that year. And so I cut the deal basically March 1st, March 2nd, something like that. So it was a vanishingly small amount to totally flesh out the, com the, the technology, package it, get it ready to ship, you know, the whole thing. And so I was basically, you know, Ted and I, during that summer, we were working literally 18-hour days. But this was not – this was your own company that you were licensing out to nutting? Well, no. We were actually at the nutting facility because I was chief engineer there. Got it. So, so, uh, they, were, so they were paying me a salary and licensed the product that I was creating. Did you have the idea that we're going to eventually going to spin out and create our own company at the time? 
Not necessarily. Um, I, my mind was at the point that I still thought that, um, you know, I didn't have enough money to, to start manufacturing, you know, and, you know, have a factory and all that. It was, I, I still thought of myself as a, uh, as a, uh, as an engineer that was doing contract engineering. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what did this project end up becoming and, uh, where, how did, where does it go from there? Well, what happened is that nutting associates turned out to be a company run by idiots and, and it was actually kind of good because whereas if they'd have been just a little bit smarter and willing to kind of treat me uh, like a partner rather than just an employee, um, I would have probably been happy to stay there. But they were, I just felt that they could screw up anything. And so I made a determination to, uh, to quit. And, uh, and in order to do that, I needed a couple of other contracts. And by that time I had a reputation in the coin op business and I went to, to Bally and, uh, they, they signed up for a, uh, a contract in which they were going to pay me another, I think it was five grand a month, which gave us an ability to, and, and I offered to build the second game for nutting under contract. And that was what allowed us to open up shop of our own on our own in, in our own place, Scott, Scott Boulevard, actually. And so did that mean you had to go out and create not only the software, but the physical sort of hardware, like the cabinets to then place in wherever you, you were going to place these games in. And how did you go about doing that? I mean, even though you knew about the, you know, coin operated business, did you know how to build it? Did you know where to go to build it and finding the right manufacturers and all that stuff? Sort of. Um, I mean, we, we knew who were the contract manufacturers for nutting. And, uh, and I had, I had uh, taught a bunch of service schools. I'd fl- for nutting, I'd flown around the country to each of the distributors and taught a service on how to repair computer space. In addition to that, we bought the prototypes. We had four prototypes for the trade show that were a standard. They were, they were prototypes. And so I was the only one that could really keep them going. And so we put those on location. So we had not just our, our contract income, but we all of a sudden had a street route where we had them in bars and restaurants and, uh, and would collect the money every week. So at what point, I guess, does um, Pong come along and you know, Atari sort of starts taking off and now you have, I'm assuming, a lot of different customers. I don't know if they were arcades or bars or who they were, but you start, you know, putting these, sort of, you know, consoles in these places and starting to make like real money. Well, this, this was another mistake. <laughs> if you would, um, I had, um, we find that we had enough money that I wanted to hire another engineer and we hired Al Alcorn 
And I thought for him to get up to speed on our technology, that I'd have him build the simplest game I could think of, which was Pong. And, uh, and it turned out to be fun. And uh, much more fun than I expected it to be. And I actually flew back to Chicago to see if I could get Bally to take it instead of the driving game. Because, you know, completing the contract, you know, three months early, I thought that would be a good thing to do. Well, they didn't want it. Because at that point in time, there were no successful coin-operated games that were only two-player. But while I was in Chicago, the machine, was, they built one, you know, just out of plywood and, and contact paper and put it in a bar. And it made so much money in such a short period of time that by the time I got on the airplane to come back, it was very clear that this was a very special game. And I thought, hey, maybe we can build it. And I figured out all the money that we had, and I figured that we could, we had enough money to build 12 units. And so we did. <laughs> and you know, when you began or when you left to start Atari, uh, it was you and your co-founder, right? Correct. Um, I know the answer, but maybe for those that don't, how did that relationship end up? I ended up buying out Ted probably um, a year and a half later. And Ted, Ted was a really good analog engineer. He was a horrible manager. And for him to have a big ownership, he just couldn't keep from screwing things up. And so I decided to to buy him out and I bought him out with some cash because we were having cash flow and he got the route. He got all the machines that we had on location, which was thrown off probably $100,000 a year. And this is the world where a associate engineer was making $800 a month. So it it was all of a sudden Ted thought he was a rich man. Was that an easy choice for you? And did it end up being the right decision? It was definitely the right decision. It was a hard choice because, you know, Ted was such a good guy and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when you work side by side with somebody building something, you always have a really soft spot in your heart with him. Right. So how long does that coin operated sort of, business last for atari and at what point do you start thinking about you know hey, hey what if we can create a home video game system um that you know our our fans or our, our users or whoever's you know lo loves atari can play these games at home on their television started out by doing pong on a chip and it was really enabled by the creation of n-channel technology which was a large-scale integrated circuit using N-channel. And N-channel allowed the chip to move to uh, operate at high frequencies. And there were only 
four places in the world that had in-channel technology. One of them was MOS Technology, and they built the chip for us. And Al, were, you seeking, were you seeking this out, or did it sort of fall in your lap, or like how did you even come across this? Because I can imagine, um, you know, I mean, yeah, just like how were you able to to find out about this and be exposed to then have the idea? Oh, we can put a game on this chip, and we could sell this console to people. It was actually Al Alcorn, and that was what one of the great things about being in Silicon Valley is you hear about things early, you know, sidelines of a little league game. <laughs> you know, I can think of several times that just the PTA meeting with another father who was working with one of the chip companies, all of a sudden I was talking about a problem and he'd say, well, we've got a chip that's just under development. I'll send you one, you know, <laughs> and, and things like that. And that's kind of, Al heard about the in-channel technology and thought to himself, hey, it looks like this could work. We hired a guy that knew how to, how to design chips, and uh, we were off to the races. It's so crazy because now obviously so much has changed where the internet, um, you know, everyone's just talking over the internet, and it's hard to perhaps hear or over come you know, overhear someone talking about something and now that everyone's talking about decentralization and you know they're moving all over the country and all over the world and you can work remotely um i i just wonder i mean maybe you can share some of your thoughts on this but like i wonder if, if it's the same now or like how how i guess um if it's you know if it if that lure of of allure of silicon valley is still very much present or silicon valley is just like a Thought, right like that, that could be applied to any place but if that's still exists in your opinion well silicon valley has something right now that is actually quite important if you're a company in silicon valley you have a much higher probability of getting venture capital and that's because they want you know the vcs want to be on the board and they don't want to travel that much they like to be able to drive down and so Sand Hill Road is actually a big magnet right now, still. Um, it's becoming less important. I mean, I've, I've got a new thing that I'm working on right now, and I've done probably four VC pitches over Zoom. And so I think it's softening somewhat. Mm. The whole idea of proximity being, you know, whereas it was – Eight stars out of ten. I think it's now five stars out of ten. Proximity. No, I really want to hear the story about you know Wozniak and Jobs and how they approached you guys early on. I believe it was in the mid seventies, right? Uh, yeah. What... Jobs. Jobs came and showed up in our lobby and said, "I'm not leaving until you hire me." <laughs> Typical job. Ari fan or how did, how how had he like had he just come across like a coin coin operated system somewhere and he was like I want to work for this company or how do you think he even found I think out about it was, we were in games because he you know he was always kind of this was kind of the the hippie days you know anti Vietnam War kind of thing and so by being a non military contractor that was kind of a, a step up. Second, we were doing games, and I think he thought that it looked like it would be fun. Mm. 
And I, I think uh, if I if I know correctly, I think you you were like his only boss. I don't know if he's ever had another boss before, but and I and I think you had mentioned somewhere that Wozniak didn't actually work for Atari; it was just kind of you know ta- you know helping yeah, jobs well, that, out. That's that. why I put put jobs on the night shift is because I knew Woz was going to be there, and I used to joke and say I got two Steves for the price of one. But had you seen, like, what had you seen in them at the time where you're like, all right, Wozniak obviously is this crazy brain. He's going to, he's, he's going to do things. Obviously Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. But like, what did, what did you see in them at the time? And did you, did you think that they would eventually end up creating the most valuable company in history? I, early on in my career, because what we were doing was sufficiently different than anything else. I hired for one characteristic, and that was passion and enthusiasm. And the thing that you that isn't talked about that much, but Jobs had one speed, full on, or whatever he did, and uh, and he, you know, he was a guy on a life mission, and it really came through very very clearly. I mean, he was the only guy in our engineering department that had a futon under his desk. And sometimes I'd find him, you know, sleeping Monday morning when I'd come in at seven. Was he, was he like a difficult person to manage or was he like a good employee? He was a horrible person to manage. Absolutely impossible. Because he didn't abide fools gladly. And when he'd have a, a, a boss, you know, he didn't report directly to me. He had a couple, there were a couple of layers in between. And if he thought they were dumb shits, he'd tell them, you know, that's a, that's a fucking <laughs> dumb thing to do, you know. And uh, that's another reason why I put him on the night shift, because <laughs> I kept him from being fired about three times. <laughs> And Nolan, I know that later on, you know, obviously Jobs and Wozniak both went on to do incredible things, but uh, they came to you guys and, you know, I, I believe offered Atari to help with the actual computer system, but you weren't necessarily interested in the time. Uh, and then he also offered you a third of the company for $50,000. You, know, right. you, you made the smart decision of saying no. Uh, Not too smart. <laughs> yeah. He would have been, I mean, you would have been up there with Jeff Bezos today. Uh, but you know, that's a whole different story. Uh, but why'd you say no? I mean, like, I'm just curious, like, you know, sure. Looking back, it's the stupidest decision one can ever make. But in that moment, it must've not been that stupid. And I'm curious why you said no. I didn't think jobs had a snowball's chance in hell of being a successful CEO. Um, nor did Wozniak. Wozniak was, you know, he, Wozniak was was a very timid nerd. You know the old joke, how do you tell a, a nerd extrovert from a nerd introvert? The the nerd extrovert looks at your shoes instead of his own. <laughs> so so you just had no faith that Steve Jobs and Wozniak can lead a company. Correct. Well, and you know I actually think that if I had invested it may have been different because I didn't have the time at the time to be the mentor, but who, but I introduced him to, to Don Valentine who introduced him to, um, 
um, God, all of a sudden I've got a, a blank. Mike, Mark, Mike Markla. Mark Markla, who turned out to be uh, the first president of, of Apple and really mentored Steve and turned him into an executive. Right. But I've, I've heard somewhere, and I don't know if you can obviously give your honest thoughts here, but I've heard somewhere that you don't really have any regrets because of how different it would have been for your own life. Is that, is that right? Yeah, because, you know, in some ways, I, after you make a certain amount of money, more lets you play in different poker games, but it doesn't really help your life. And at some point, you actually lose personal life. Like the idea of going around with bodyguards and things like that, like Zuckerberg and those guys, I, I wouldn't want that. Hmm. So I think it was kind of fast forward. I think it was like the late mid to late seventies. You end up selling Atari to Warner communications for, I think, I think about 28 million. if that's right. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to sell at the time? And do do, do you have any, I guess, regrets about selling perhaps too early or too, too late? Or how did you feel about the whole thing? I, I kind of had to. Um, we had finished the design on the 2600, the, the Atari, the cartridge system. And we just didn't have enough money to put it into, into Christmas. And so we started out, we thought we were going to go public to raise the capital. And, uh, at that point in time, the venture capital world was tiny little, tiny little funds. You know, they, you know, $20 million funds, $30 million funds. And we needed about 10 million bucks. And that was just not available from VCs. Taking it public would have been great, but the market didn't want IPOs at the time. You know, there was, it was one of these things where the market was down and it didn't work. And so we started on this quest to find a corporate investor, of which Warner was one of them. And they songed and danced us and, and uh, gave me an offer I couldn't refuse, so I didn't refuse it. And um, had you started Chuck E. Cheese at this time already through Atari? Or? Atari yes. How did that come about because so that happened before you sold and and so how did how did you i guess come up with the idea you know i guess it kind of makes sense you know thinking about being in the arcade business and also having your own gaming consoles and then i guess putting them into a, a physical space that sold, also sold pizza and food but was there kind of anything more to that like how did you kind of envision chuck e cheese and what it would become because we you know both Posh and I, uh, you know, we grew up in the '90s, and anyone who grew up in the '80s and the '90s, I mean, it's, it's a staple. It's like it's you know, Chuck E. Cheese is is a big part of your childhoods. And so, um, how did you how did you how did the whole idea conceptualize from the beginning? It was really driven by what I call vertical integration towards the market, and we were selling games, coin operated games, for fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. In their lifetime, they would earn somewhere between thirty and fifty thousand dollars in coin drop. And so I said, "Hey, you know, we're on the wrong side of this equation." But I didn't want to compete with my uh, my customers 
and the competition was on locations. You know, go into Joe's bar, put games in, split revenue, or go into a mall and rent a space to set up an arcade. There were already people doing that. And so I felt that I had to do a standalone place. And I also knew that younger kids loved the games, but there weren't any good places. The uh, little kids and teenagers don't mix. You know, they just, they just don't. And so I felt that there was a huge market gap or, or a sucking sound for kids, you know, 2 to 12, that would love to play the games with their parents. And, uh, and so I decided to, to do a kids-oriented uh, uh, game center and then have it around food and, and entertainment. I'm sure when people hear that the founder of Atari is also the founder of Chuck E. Cheese, they're like, wait, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> the same guy? Are you kidding me? What the hell was he thinking? Right. Yeah. But then when you hear about, you know, why you did it, it makes a lot more sense. But, you know, what was Chuck E. Cheese like in the early days? And, you know, did you enjoy running that business? No. <laughs> Well, yes and no. There are certain businesses that need innovation all the time. Once the die had sort of been cast, and, you know, with, with Chuck E. Cheese, our first unit was 5,000 square feet, and we knew the day we opened that it was too small. Hmm. Then we rented a, an old uh, Safeway store and that was 25,000, 30,000 square feet. That was too big. And the third one we opened was 15,000, and that was about right. And so it was just a matter of replicating that. Mm. <laughs> and I worked out the franchising, and that, was, that kept me interested for about a year and a half. Mm. And then it got really boring. <laughs> you know, there was, you know I, I kept trying to innovate, but the, you just shouldn't innovate when something's working like that. Right. You know, I think I think one of the things that people remember or know about Chuck E. Cheese is that that pizza time animatronic, those animals that you know sing, right? Yeah. I mean, that, it's definitely a clear memory in my head. You know, been to too many parties at Chuck E. Cheese as a kid. Uh, what was the inspiration for that? I mean, I mean, where, where, where do you come up with this stuff? Oh, hey, I'm I'm an editor. The <laughs> uh, Chuck E. Cheese show came right out of Tiki Room from Disney. Wow. Okay. Did you, I, I mean, what, what was it about Disney that you were so into? When I graduated with, with an engineering degree, I wanted to work for Imagineering. Because mm. remember, if you had an engineering degree and you knew something about amusement parks, the top of the, the, the stack was Disney. They didn't want to. They they didn't want to give me the time of day. So you know, who would have thought? I mean, like you know, now that you say, it, I mean, you could have been an excellent CEO of Disney with the with what the stuff that you built. I mean, it, you would have been the perfect person for that job. Yeah, because the guy that was running it at the time was a real bozo. Um, <laughs> he was like the uh, the husband of one of Walt's daughters, and he really. Right. 
you know, it was, was it Roy? Meisner came along that, that really did some good stuff for the company. Right. Um, so you mentioned kind of the feeling of like lack of innovation in the early days, but obviously the company lasted for, I mean, over 40 years. Still around. Uh, still around. Um, and uh, how, but how, I guess in more recent times, like how have you felt about just sort of the future of Chuck E. Cheese and where it's going? I mean, you know, I, I know um, you're not as involved anymore, but how, I guess what, how are your general feelings about that before we sort of move on to everything you're working on now? Well, I, I think old founders always think that their baby is being mismanaged. You know, this is kind of, you know, not horribly mismanaged, but they, they were able to milk the cash cow that I created. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I was actually part of the advisory of, uh, when Apollo bought Chuck E. Cheese out from the public shareholders. And, uh, and that was okay. Right now, um, I think that with COVID and what have you, when private equity comes in and takes over a company, they I think they put in two hundred million of, of of equity, and the rest of it was senior and subordinated debt. And so, when things went south a little bit, they missed some of their debt payments and. Uh, and now I, I'm pretty sure it's controlled by the debt holders, not and the equity is wiped out. Is there anything big that they that they should have done, or I guess you would have done if you were still running the business that you would have liked to see them do? Yes, I I always felt that there was a lot that Chuck E. Cheese had the opportunity to. Chuck E. Cheese always had the problem of weekdays, and that uh, essentially you covered all your overhead and made a little bit of profit Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday. If you could get something going on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it would just gush cash. And I always felt that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that you had a facility that could be used with an educational spin to it. Get the kids in sort of a, as an after-school thing to learn about tech or or even restaurant operations. Just just something because I felt that there's a lot of parents that would like their kids to have additional training and additional knowledge of of things. And I always felt that Chucky had that opportunity. Nolan, clearly you're a guy who doesn't run out of energy and. You know, after, you know, you sell Atari, after you sell Chuck E. Cheese and you're no longer, you know, doing this stuff, even though I assume maybe you were involved behind the scenes, you created what became one of like the first incubators, right? Business incubators, uh, which a lot of people know today, you know, Y Combinator, for example, in Silicon Valley is probably one of the most prominent and, you know, the big one of the biggest incubators out there. But you were clearly one of the pioneers for, you know, what you were doing as well. How did you come up with that idea to say, you know what, beyond just money, I want to take on these businesses that are starting off, mentor them, teach them, give them some sort of resources, and then see where they go? At Atari, I always had a lot of projects that were in the germination stage. And when uh, Warner bought it, he, they basically closed them all down which said to me that I was spending money that I didn't get any benefit for. 
And so I thought to myself, hey, if I've got these ideas and these things, let's just spin up. More than half of the companies that, that I funded in Catalyst, which was the name of the, the uh, incubator, were self-created. I basically put management team around it, funded it, and what have you. I also felt that there was some streamlining that could go on, that uh, people come in insular packages, and a small company doesn't need a CFO. But six companies that are small could fully engage a CFO, and they'd share. Right. So my idea was that uh, I could automate the incorporation process, payroll, what have you, and that once I decided to fund somebody, I could have them incorporated, have a payroll set up, have, have health insurance, all that stuff done. You know, the CEO signs his name 14 times, and all of a sudden he's in business and starts working on his project instead of all this paperwork that you have to do to start up a company. No, as somebody who's, you know, a self-proclaimed intellectual, intellectually arrogant, right? What were you like and or are like now as a manager or a leader? I mean, are you the kind of person that's open door policy, come talk to me whenever you want? Or do you put power and influence in the hands of a few certain managers and let them run the business however they want it to be run? I'm very, very hands-off. I really try to get good people, and uh, I think of myself as more of a cheerleader than a business manager, that we agree on a direction, and I don't. it doesn't need to be my way of executing that direction. And, uh, and I think that that's a much better way than if you try to micromanage somebody. You know, obviously, since starting Atari, we've seen companies like Sony come along with the PlayStation and you know, Microsoft with the Xbox and just so many other sort of people entering the space and the industry has grown so much. I think I read, um, you know, the, the global gaming industries, uh, you know, did $160 billion in 2020 and it's growing by almost 10% year over year. And as someone who's obviously been known as the father of electronic gaming, um, and someone who sort of was a pioneer has been a pioneer and just sort of created this whole industry. Um, how did you? How do you feel about where the industry has come, and how how where do you see it going from from this point? First of all, I'm quite proud, but I my rule is don't live your life looking in the rearview mirror. Uh, you know, always keep forward uh, forward focus, and and I think that you know. Warner populated the management of Atari with record people. And they were so focused on software that they didn't realize that they were also in the record player business. And so they basically didn't obsolete themselves with a new, better unit. In fact, one of the reasons I left is I said, hey, we got to start on the second version. And they said, well, you know, but this is really a good system. And the crash in 83 was really them thinking they could push that, what I consider to be an obsolete 2600 into the market for another year. And it couldn't, they really needed to 
upgrade. And for example, when the 2600 was designed, memory was very, very expensive. A year later, it was one one hundredth the cost per bit. So the Atari 2600 had 128 bytes of memory, not kilobytes, bytes. And, you know, the next unit, we could have had a complete line buffer that would have given us, you know, high resolution, multiple colors, all kinds of great stuff that the 2600 didn't with the quarter inch pixels and the, I mean, it was just junk, you know, compared to what it could have been. And, uh, anyway, and that was, Warner didn't want to do it and, and they paid the price for it. And so now there are obviously many, many people who have built a career on the top of this type of technology, right? And, and, uh, it just, the industry is just growing and growing. We've had sort of the, you know, we've had the founder of, uh, Riot Games who created League of Legends on the, on the podcast and uh, several other folks in the space. And, um, it's just, it's, it's kind of hard to, or not hard, but it's crazy to see where it's come from, from those days. Um, but how, like, I guess, um, where do you see the, the industry in your eyes going from, from here? Um, do you, does it just keep growing to the point where, I mean, there's just a bunch of people in the space creating games and. Well, I think, um, I don't think you can talk about the industry anymore. You have to talk about industries and it turns out that the console game, um, is different than the PC gaming environment. Very different from the VR headsets, the, the Oculus Rift and all that different than, than the games that you play on. Uh, on your iPad or, 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 or Android tablet. Right. Different still from the ones that you play on your phone. Each of these are kind of eco, you know, separate ecosystems for gameplay. Have kind of different rules, different, different monetary sets. And I think that will continue. I think that there will be, um, a whole series of games that are going to be augmented reality as opposed to virtual reality. Um, and I think virtual reality is just getting, starting to get its, 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 its breath right now. And I do you think, think that's going to be very, very big. Do you think that's going to create a more democratized creator community where, you know, there are going to be tools where, you know, more and more people that don't have, perhaps the experience of, you know, coding a video game from scratch can create their own, you know, games yeah. and. Yeah. It already is. Unity. I know eight year olds right now that are doing apps using unity. And it's, it's just exactly what you said. It's, it's a series of tools and, uh, and they're, they're really accessible for somebody. I mean, do I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if those had been available from when I was eight, I would have been a game designer then <laughs> or now. <laughs> right. So talk to us about where you're working now on, on now. I know um, you have a couple different projects uh, and you're getting really creative with uh, the board games and different things. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on and um, yeah, what's going on. There. I love 
the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. I think the speech recognition is magical. And the things that, that I'm working on there are board games that are mediated or enhanced by the smart speakers. Hmm. So we've got a game out called Saint Noir. You can get it on Amazon right now, in which you are the detective and you are verbally interrogating suspects and trying to figure out who's lying and to solve it. And it's just really a lot of fun. And we actually have a Kickstarter that'll be uh, going, I think, the 16th of this month for another game that has the best focus group that I've ever seen. People laughing and slapping each other on the back and just having a great time, even when they're sober. And it's even better with a little bit of alcohol. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it, it's called uh, Star Edition. And uh, go into to you got to go into uh, Kickstarter and, and buy some because it's going to be great. We're you know actually, go ahead. Well, check it out. And I know that you know it's easy for somebody to just kind of Google your name and go through a list of all of your accomplishments and everything you've worked on and. You know, all the stuff you're working on and things that interest me are like, you know, what you've done with modal or with anti-aging games and brain rush. I mean, the list goes on and on with all the stuff that you've done on a more recent level as opposed to just Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. But I'm curious, you know, of everything that you've done, of all the projects from four years old to now that you've worked on almost 70 plus years, what's your number one favorite? If you had to rank them, right, from one to whatever, what's number one? My family. I've got eight kids, and, uh, and they are the, the, the joy of my life. And, you know, for example, Brent opened Two-Bit Circus, which is a micro amusement park, 50,000 square feet. Yeah. Have you been there? I've heard of it. I haven't been yet. Oh, you got to go. Well, after COVID. Tyler done Polycade, which is a wonderful gaming system, uh, coin-op for the home. I mean, it's not coin-op for the home, but it, it, it plays all the old favorites. So the stuff that I used to love at Chuck E. Cheese, I've now got it in my, in my entryway. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my youngest son, uh, Wyatt, just got a six-figure advance designing games uh, that he's about to go. And, you know, he's just doing some great stuff. Gavin designed some of the games for, for Two-Bit Circus. Dylan, he's shot a movie. He's done some great stuff. My oldest daughter does PR for all of us. And, uh, you know, and, and I got a daughter in finance and, and uh, a daughter who is a uh, published author and a PhD. Um, I just feel like, you know, my dad always said, if you, if you can get your kids to be 21 without being in rehab or, <laughs> or jail, you've accomplished something. <laughs> well, the bar is low, but I totally get it. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, you were obviously, you know, a working dad and, 
you know, spending time building these incredible companies, how are you able to find, you know, a rhythm between your work and your life and everything else that was going on and keeping your mental health sane and keeping your physical health fine? How are you able to balance all of this stuff? Kids don't need quantity as much as they need quality. And so I set up things very early on where I would have really good quality time with the kids. And we would work on projects together. And every Sunday, I would take one of them out to, to breakfast, just one-on-one, usually a half hour away. I'd take them to a weird spot, you know, where old fishermen would be coming in or, or truck drivers or what have you. But the idea was to have at least a half hour, 45 minutes in the car talking about their life and what have you. And, and, uh, and everybody knew, knew whose turn it was and, and, uh, they looked for it and then I'd spoil them a little bit after breakfast and, you know, we'd go somewhere fun. And then the second thing I would do is do a, uh, an overnight, I'd take kids on a business trip with me. And they'd sit right next to me during the meetings and what have you. And I felt that that one, they, they got to know what dad did. And second, we'd get to hang it a little bit on some intensive place when they were, when they were 12, they could go domestically with me overnight. When they were 14, they could go to uh, Europe with me. And when they were 16, they got to go to, to Asia with me. And so it was fun for me because, you know, taking your kids to Japan for the first time, you got to experience, you know, Japan through their eyes like it was almost the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always felt that one of the prime responsibilities of a father is to teach your kids about the world. And so we kind of do that. You know, someone like you that had entrepreneurship just sort of hardwired in their brain from such a young age. And and for folks listening who are perhaps, you know, younger on the younger side that are just getting their career started today. Um, if you were to start your career today, what, what would you do? I mean, where would you go? How would you go about things knowing what you know now and where the world is at now? First of all, I'd make the decision, do you know what you want to do? If you do, go for it. Um, If you don't know what you want to do, I uh, I would go to Las Vegas, rent an apartment, and go to every trade show. Um, and, uh, you know, fake a press pass so you don't have to pay and you just attend every trade show. You walk the floor and you see if you can get a job as an intern randomly. I believe that too many kids want to be an entrepreneur and they, they haven't, they don't have enough work experience at all. I probably had 20 jobs before I started Atari, all the way from amusement park to selling advertising to repairing cars, repairing TVs, working in a clothing store. And, and I just think that all of that stuff prepares you. And 
everybody needs to know a little bit of accounting. You need to know a little bit about media. Uh, I so just on that point, though, as, as someone who obviously, um, you know, you, you, uh, you were like, Steve Jobs was, you know, a young guy. Wozniak was a young guy working for you. Like they were not very well experienced at the time, and they obviously went on to create what they created. But do you think examples like them are anomalies? They're 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 just rare to find. They're rare, rare they're a rare breed. Or do you think that like what was it about them that you saw back then that could explain why they were able to be successful without a lot of experience? There's two or three things that are characteristic of, of um, big innovation. The more innovative somebody is, the, more, the less likely they are to be taken seriously. That is, when you're, when you're doing you know, a disk drive company that, that is 10% better than the competition, everybody gets it. But when you're doing something like a 10 times bigger pizza parlor with talking robotic animals, that's kind of a stretch for a lot of people. And entrepreneurs that are truly good at drastic innovation are kind of rule breakers. They're kind of outliers. They're the kind of people that, you know, I get a kick out of these companies that, that any new employee gets interviewed by 20 people in the company. That's sure to create mediocrity. You know, you don't get, you don't get innovation from a democracy. You get it from a, a one crazy bastard that's willing to say, this will work. And, and I, I, I told Steve, I said, you know, if you go into a room of 50 people and everybody says you're crazy and you think you're right, you probably are. Wow. No, who's, I'm curious, you know, who is one entrepreneur living or dead that you look up to and have always looked up to? Elon Musk, easily. Why? He's basically taken innovation in a lot of ways and really pushed on it. Um, I just like, I, I just like the fact that he does things and he doesn't take himself totally seriously. And, and, uh, I just respect that a lot. Have you met him? Yes, I have. And, and what did you, th- I mean, what did you guys talk about? What did you guys think of each other? Well, I don't know what he thought of me. I think he, <laughs> Not of me is probably an old fart, but uh, I just felt that uh, wide ranging conversation on a lot of different things. I was very interested in battery technology and how you could increase the charge speed because I felt that charge speed is a really important thing, and I feel like there's not enough work being done on on rapid charge. The chemical processes, and and my theory is that if you created massively parallel batteries, you could increase the charge speed. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you're working on all these projects right now. What what is kind of your vision for, I guess, what this creates? Um, like, what are you most excited for? I guess in the next, you know, five, ten, fifteen years to come. Well, you know, I've got a couple of things in in stealth mode that I can't talk about, but I really like the Amazon Echo stuff, and that also is leads to I, I want to do a a a television series um, using branching narrative. I don't know if you saw Bandersnatch, the, the black uh, bear. Yeah. It's a branching narrative story. And I believe that that is a really interesting thread for the future of entertainment. Where those listening that haven't seen it, it's the one where you know you sort of reach a point in the show or in the movie where you can choose where the movie goes next. Um, you can exactly. you have multiple options. Uh, there are different, you know, endings. There are different ways that this, you know, the trajectory of this film could go, and it's ultimately yours to to decide. And it's more interactive than a traditional movie or show. Exactly, and the way I look at it, there's kind of a continuum. There's game, game here. There's movie, movie here, and then there's some some things in between here. And uh, if you have a lot of branching, it's more game game. If you have a little bit of branching, it's more movie movie. And somewhere, the person who figures out where that right spot is, I think that there's a few billion dollar business there. I agree. And I think, you know, speaking of gamification in general, um, it's just such an interesting phenomenon because you apply it to anything and it starts getting your sort of juices flowing and your brain going and, it's not it's not you're not an you're not sitting idly it's more active than passive in terms of whatever you're interacting with so one area that i've personally wanted to see a lot of a lot more gamification is education because i think it it could help with it could help with attention yeah. especially with young well there's this thing called flow state which when you're building a video game you want to get your player into flow state as soon as you can and we discovered that very, very early on. We didn't know, we didn't call it flow state. We called it uh, suspension of, of, of disbelief. And, and is uh, that this perspective of it, where they're in the state of flow, they're not really thinking about how much money they're spending on a game? Or is it, is it just like from another, yeah? Well, it's, if you look at the fortunes throughout, throughout the world, they all have some addiction associated with it whether we're talking about coffee or alcohol or even chocolate. And so I always felt that if I could create an addiction around games, that I was going to be successful. And I think we were pretty good at it. Yeah. 100%. Well, Nolan, I think we could sit here for days and talk about everything you've done and all your thoughts and ideas. And as much as I'd love that, I know that, you know, Nancy's going to kill us if this keeps going further. She's probably going to kill you before she kills us. Um, well, she's, but she's running around doing dinner right now. So, yeah. <laughs>